Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Kurt Mortensen. Kurt is one of America's leading authorities on persuasion, negotiation, and influence. He spent over 15 years researching persuasion, negotiation, and motivational psychology. He's the author of Persuasion IQ, The Laws of Charisma, and the best-selling book, Maximum Influence. Thank you so much, Kurt, for coming on the show today. Hey, Chris. It's a great honor. Thanks for having me. So can you tell me a little about your background, uh, some of the things that you've done that kind of got you to this place and allowed you to create such awesome books? Well, it all goes back to, you know, you go to school and you get the degree and I went off, got an advanced business degree thinking you know all that. Then you get thrust into the business world and realize that <laughs> you don't know as much as you need to know to be successful in the business world. And I was kind of thrown back a little bit to realize that it came down to the the people skills, the influence, the charisma, the emotional intelligence, the things that you need to know to really advance in business. And so I try to learn how to influence. And at first, I was a little offended with some of the things that they were teaching me that I'm like, you know, that wouldn't really work. That wouldn't work. That offends me. That would offend other people. And just came to the conclusion that we all persuade for a living. Parents, teachers, leaders, managers, dating, whatever we do, it all comes back to persuasion, influence, and charisma. And I noticed in the workplace that a lot of times, I think your listeners can relate to this, that you meet someone that doesn't seem that sharp, and then you realize they're making 10 times more money than you, or they're getting the promotion. You're like, well, what do they have that I don't have? And it always came back to persuasion and influence. And the numbers were astounding as I started doing the research that 85% of our success in life and in business comes back to our ability to work with people, to understand influence, to understand people's emotion. And that really got me on the fast track to mastery skills, not only for myself, but also to teach other people. That's awesome. So you talk a little bit about what are some of the differences between influence, persuasion, negotiation? You bet. Influence to me is kind of who you are, your passion, your charisma, your trust. When you have influence with somebody, you don't need any data or any statistics. You don't need to sit down and do a presentation. They're influenced because of who you are, their experience, you, their past history versus persuasion tends to be more what you do when you say the techniques that you learn, the tools that you have. And then there's negotiation. We see that quite a bit in business. And I've always had the rule that you persuade first, you negotiate second. Because with persuasion, you bring someone to your point of view. And with negotiation, it tends to be more of a give, take, give, take, and you meet somewhere in the middle. So those are kind of my definitions between the two. So you always want to influence first if you can, if you have that relationship, and then you kind of go down the ladder to persuasion, then negotiation. Can you talk about what are some elements to being effective at each? Influence comes back to, you know, that charisma that you talk about, the trust. Do people really trust you? That's influence. The history that you've had together. If there's someone in your life that would You'd give them $1,000 with no questions asked. That's influence. There's, there's a history. There's a track record. There's trust there versus persuasion. You might not have the relationship or it might be more of a rocky relationship. It might be someone at work. It might be a business experience to where you have to sit down and, and persuade with the, the tools and the things that you need to learn. And then negotiation usually happens when there's two persuaders trying to go after the same thing. And it, there's a few different techniques there. I'm curious, what are some of the kind of common mistakes that people make when they're attempting to influence or even going a step further, persuade people? Well, there's a long list there. Let me go through a few of those. I think the big one people need to realize is that our default settings as humans, 
whether it's in business or dating or whatever we're doing, is that we tend to persuade others how we like to be persuaded, right? That's what we do. And that's wrong. We need to learn to adapt. We need to learn how to persuade people how they want to be persuaded and realize that people are so skeptical now that the moment that they sense that you're going to try to persuade or influence them, even though they need it, want it, like it, they're going to resist you. And so your goal, if you look at very influential people, they help people persuade themselves. And so the goal here is to really understand that we need to get more tools in persuasion and influence and charisma. The average person only uses three to four tools over and over and over again. And there's over a hundred. You know, as Maslow, you've heard this before, it says if the only tool in your toolbox is a hammer, you treat everyone like a nail. So if we could learn to customize, to read people, to understand people, then it goes a long way. Because a lot of times we just want to do the data dump or what I call the vomit. Here are the 27 reasons you should fill in the blank. And that doesn't persuade or influence people because persuasion, charisma, all this. And this was the most amazing thing I learned doing this type of research is that up to 95% of influence, and this is even more important in dating, involves a subconscious trigger. I like this person. I don't like this person. I trust this person. I don't trust this person. Happens in seconds. And it could be a smell, it could be a color, it could be how you're dressed, it could be how you stand, it could be how close you stand, it could be the, your breath. All these things come into play for people to instantly like or trust you. And a lot of people don't even account for that. They just want to give you all the data and hope that it influences you. It made me think of a story when I was in my early 20s, I had gone back to college and I had been elected president of my college. And I was trying to figure out how to persuade my kind of student council towards a particular outcome. And I remember I was sitting with the president or superintendent of uh, the university and we were talking about this, this kind of very subject. And he said, uh, he goes, well, you know, he goes, you want it to be their idea. Right. And, and I said, well, how would you go about doing that? And he goes, well, let's say I wanted like an international center on campus. I could just give people a list of 10 reasons or 20 reasons or a hundred reasons why it would be beneficial for them to have an international center on campus. But instead, what I might do is figure out who are the most important people that I need to influence in, in this area. And then I would gather those people into a room and I would sit down with them and I would say, you know, I've been thinking and, and I, I want your want your input on this uh, as a group. I, I want your input. I respect you. Um, I respect your recommendations. I respect your opinions. Like one of the things I was thinking about, what, what would it be like to have more international students on campus? And so one of the things I'd like to ask you guys is what would that, what type of impact would that have on the campus? Like what would that mean for the community? What would it mean for our campus? Would this be a positive or negative thing? And then what happens, he said, people will start answering that question for you. And he goes, and that's the first seed to getting them to, to make it their idea. That was a really effective tool that I've used in other aspects of my life. What are some of the other tools that you think are effective other than, as you described, this this vomiting statistic strategy for building influence and persuasion? The key factor, and that's, that's a great example, is when you can help people persuade themselves, it's so powerful. Study after study shows that, that great influential people. I mean, the first thing is checking your ego at the door, realizing that if you can help them create the idea, come up with the idea, it goes a long way. And, and building that trust, it's, you know, in sales, they call it this closing skill thing. And that's not true. The ability to open up people and build the trust. In fact, I always say that uh, you'll appreciate this, is that closing skills is like trying to get a kiss after a bad date. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> if people don't like you and they don't trust you, 
there's it really doesn't matter what you do and say, right? I mean, that's true in dating and life and negotiation. It doesn't it doesn't matter. And here are the astounding numbers is that when people like you and trust you, you have a 90% chance of influence. If they don't like you or don't trust you, you have a 10% chance. So if I'm going to interject something here, I think your ability to really connect with people, number one, your ability to build the trust, number two, and realize that these are things that we can all work on. It's amazing. And I, I always ask people, you know that annoying person that no one's like? You know that person that rubs you the wrong way? You know the person that thinks they're funny, they're not, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, it could be you <laughs> because people don't know. Sometimes they're just nice to you. And, and when it comes to people skills and building trust, a lot of times we get stuck to think we're doing okay. Then, But that's something we always work on, especially now. People are so skeptical. You, even though you're a good, trustworthy person does not mean people are going to instantly trust you. Well, how, how does somebody know if they're a trustworthy person? Because you're right. Some people have uh, perspectives on themselves that might not be consistent with the perspectives of the people around them. And how do they, once they, they have that assessment, how do they build stronger trust? And that's the big thing is just to realize in this situation with people being so skeptical is you have to assume people don't trust you out of the shoot. You have to build the trust. I think 20 years ago is, you know, I trust you, give me a reason not to. Now it's, you know, I don't trust you, give me a reason not to trust you or give me a reason to trust you. And that's what's important to understand. And so I call it the five C's of trust. And each one of these you add, the more the people will trust you. The first is what most people think is that character, the integrity, the honesty, the sincerity. Then in the business world, competence is going to be important. Do you have the tools to solve their problem? Do you have the credibility? What do other people say about you? Do you have a congruence? Do you, your body language match what you're saying? And do you have the, the confidence that you need to be able to do something like that? So every one of these that you add it dramatically increases that trust. And so you can tell when people trust you from their demeanor. Are they starting to mirror and match you? Are their shoulders squaring up with you? Amount of eye contact. There's a lot of nonverbals that you can really take a look at. And that's a big one for your listeners is taking the time to read the nonverbals to see if you've connected, to see if you have the trust versus then continuing on with what you want to say or what you want to do. You mentioned that the, some of the nonverbals, somebody's facing you, uh, their eye contact. So their body language is square to you is what you said. Your shoulders are square to you. So essentially, they're falling into physical rapport. They're holding eye contact. What are some of the other things that uh, a person can do in order to both connect other people and recognize that their attempts are having a real impact? Well, if you really want to truly connect with someone, there's some things that we need to understand with just attraction how we look and attraction is not only our physical appearance we all know that's important but you know we all know and the studies show that even in the judicial system that the ugly convicts get a longer prison sentences for the same crime presidential elections a better looking candidate usually wins so we always assume people are smarter more trustworthy than they actually are just based on their physical appearance that could be height we know that most male ceos are over six foot there's something about height and attraction and how you look studies show that but that also could be is your personality attractive that's something people look at, how you dress. And then, of course, we all know the basics. There's the people skills. There's the building rapport. Even the science of proxemics, the, the science of space, how close you stand to somebody, those are all the subconscious triggers that make a big difference when you're approaching somebody, you're talking to someone, you want to build that connection. Even touch. You know touch is so important. The handshake. I read an amazing study the other day that a bad handshake, set you back one hour in building rapport and connecting somebody. Can you imagine that? One hour with a bad handshake. 
I think the big picture for everyone with a handshake is to realize that it's a form of touch. There's a connection with touch, or it also repels people. But the big complaints are, of course, too sweaty. The, you've, you've had the too many pumps where you're trying to pull your hand away. They're standing too close or standing too far, lack of eye contact. Too strong, too weak, just grab your fingers. Those are all big complaints. I think the, your listeners need to understand that you're, you should mirror other people's handshakes. It's not always the same. To where you're squaring your shoulders, eye contact, two to three pumps, you're interlocking the thumbs, and that's a powerful thing. And realize that if you're in the business situation, this one's interesting, is that I mean, you know, male CEO is going to come with their handshake on top. It's a power play. You probably shouldn't fight them for it unless, I guess, <laughs> some type of negotiation that you're trying to do. But And then some people don't want to shake hands anymore. They're doing the bump or maybe a touch on the shoulder. But if you can mirror their strength, Look them in the eye, two to three pumps, it goes a long way because we live in a society where a lot of people are, want to shake hands. You also mentioned space, right? And so shaking somebody's hands is one of the strategies we've developed in Western culture to negotiate space and really even relationships, right? How does somebody go from a stranger to an acquaintance? Can you talk about the idea of space and relationships and how you use this to be more influential? Absolutely. And that handshake, you're inviting someone to your space. Handshake goes back to medieval times to show people that you don't, you didn't have a weapon. And so we've been using this for a long time, but you're inviting them in your space. And it, it depends on culture. For example, United States, we're probably around, around 20 inches. South America is probably 16 inches. Germany's 28 inches. The Middle East, sometimes they want to feel your breath. There's no right or wrong. It's just different. In fact, if you want to have a fun time, put a North American and a South American room talking to each other. The North American will keep backing up, and you'll see them just kind of, you fast-forward the videotape, that he keeps backing up trying to maintain that space. And so be careful with space, that you don't approach the space too quick. You don't, you know, 24 inches is probably, 20 to 24 inches is safe in the United States. Even little things, like if you went to someone's office and moved something on their desk, I think we've all had a parent or grandparent that had their favorite chair, and when somebody sat into it, that really threw them off a little bit because that's a violation of their space. So understand that there's a, an invisible bubble there. We've, I think we've seen what they call the close talker, someone that talks a little too close to you, and that really is unnerving for us and makes us tense and uneasy. And, and so let's say that once somebody doesn't have the ruler <laughs> with them, <laughs> so they don't, they're like uh, 22 inches, are there any th things that they can recognize in the other person that – uh, will give them a sign that they're in a, a zone of comfort or have gotten too close? Yeah, if they're obviously stepping back or if they're running out the door, that would be signs that you've gotten a little too close. You might see their, their neck or their head go back a little bit. But then on the opposite, too, as you're starting to connect with somebody, you're going to see that space kind of close up. You're going to see them lean forward a little bit more. You don't need that space that, that you needed in the beginning when you were a stranger. Now they're inviting you into their space. And so just that time to read the person, listen with your ears, your eyes, and your heart will tell you a lot when you have that connection. Well, we'll often tell people if you touch somebody like they're a friend, you'll, they'll feel like they're your friend. But there is definitely this that kind of navigation towards that. It is. There's something powerful about touch. Waitresses that touch get higher tips. Librarians who touch get better valuations. People touched in a shopping situation bought more. I mean, there's a long list of things. There are a few people out there that, be careful, don't want to be touched at all. And you can kind of sense that. But for the most part, we all have touch. And there's different rules. You know, Women touching women, there's rules. Men touching women 
Women, there's a lot of rules. Women touching men. Well, I guess there's no rules we like to be touched. <laughs> well, there's probably a few rules there, but it's it's different. There's by the gender how we look at touch. This is awesome. So you talked about connecting. We talked about trust. You also mentioned that you can learn these things, right? So we're moving into the idea of persuasion IQ. Can you just talk about what is persuasion IQ and how does somebody increase their persuasion IQ? Sure. My my first book, Maximum Influence, I focused on the laws of persuasion. And then I took a look at persuasion IQ, which is more the traits, the characteristics, the mindsets of a top persuader, a very influential person. What does that look like? Anybody can learn how to persuade and influence. A lot of people say, no, you have to be born. No, that's not true. You could really enhance your persuasion IQ and understand little things that now introverts outpersuade extroverts. That's a big shift in the world of persuasion. Because extroverts come across more salesy, uh, more more outgoing versus introverts sometimes listen. They act as consultants. And those that listen, we know, are, are more about making that connection. And the reason I looked at this and I asked people, I've asked over 10,000 people, how much money have you lost with your ability to persuade and influence? And the average, I averaged them all together, was $4.3 million, whether it's the relationship or the negotiation, the business. And a lot of people out there would try something. They try to become an entrepreneur and they say it didn't work. And I'd say, well, no, it didn't work for you. Look at all the people that it was successful. What were they missing? It was that persuasion IQ. And so, yes, we can all enhance our persuasion IQ. We can learn these skills. We can get more tools. And it affects every aspect of our life from parents, teachers, leaders, managers of business, dating. It doesn't matter. This is the skill that will have an amazing return on your investment. I agree with you 100%. Um, I'm, I'm going to dig even deeper on maybe some specific strategies. You just talked about the idea of people who essentially talk a lot to persuade versus somebody who's more of an introvert. And, and digging a little bit deeper, I think we're talking a lot about somebody who is trying to persuade by explaining versus somebody who's asking a lot of questions. Is it, can you want to expand on that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. When you look at a truly influential person that has a high persuasion IQ, they're asking three times more questions. And it, it can't be that simple to where when you learn to ask the right questions, when you become the doctor of persuasion, the doctor asks lots of questions, that they're going to tell you everything you need to know to influence them. It can be that simple. If we just learn to, to shut up and listen and ask questions, not only do they like us more, not only is it a foundational people skills, but you're gathering information to be able to influence them, help them influence themselves down the long run. Just remember, great influential people, people with high persuasion IQ, ask three times more questions than the average person. Can you talk about some of the different types of questions? Sure. There's the open-ended question. There's the closed-ended question. Your goal here is not to get the yes-no, the closed-ended questions. If you could have the open-ended questions and then use silence. Make sure, let them talk. I don't know if you've ever seen Barbara Walters do an interview. She can get anybody to cry, and she doesn't say much. She just says, hmm, tell me more. Wow. (laughs) And they keep talking, and they keep talking, and more information, more information, and they reveal everything about their childhood and all the emotional scars that they have. Not that's what you're looking for, but if you could be silent and say, "Uh uh-huh, tell me more. What do you mean? How do you think? That's interesting. Why do you say that? Those open-ended questions, you keep going and going, that's going to help you gather all the information you need to be more charismatic and more influential. One of my first jobs was actually selling cars. And one of the things that I learned was, and you kind of mentioned this earlier, was that the close was a natural progression of the sale. Meaning I did everything, if I did everything right before 
that point, um, then what happened is people just people came in with these like objections, like real objections. Some of them re- are reflex. Like if I approached somebody and I said, can I help you? They would always say, I'm just looking. Versus if I walked up and I started with either or question, like for example, I walked up and said, hi, I'm Chris and you are. And they would tell me their name and I'd say, okay, are you looking for someone or something? And they'd say, I'm looking for a car. And I'd say, well, are you looking for a car or a truck? And they'd say, no, I'm, they tell me either or they'd say, I'm looking for a van. I'd say, okay, did you see something on the lot that you wanted me to show you? Or do you want me to show you what's in inventory? And they're like, oh, there's something I want you want to see. So I would kind of use these questions to lead the interaction. And well, I guess that there's kind of two things I want to ask about. One is, can you talk a little bit about the idea of how to lead without, how to persuade without controlling and the idea of questions, but are, is that the primary strategy? Are there other strategies? And I have kind of a follow-up question. You mentioned that's a great story about how you, the whole process you're persuading, it's not just at the very end. And that's an important thing if you, when you're not wanting to help people when you're, whether you're selling a car or you're dating is one of the big complaints that people has is that when you get to the point where you're asking to them to buy the car or asking for the date, a lot of times people's demeanor changes. They get all nervous and tense inside and people sense that and, and it repels people and that's actually a big complaint. So you are persuaded the whole time. So to lead the conversation without look like you're leading or controlling the conversation, first one is questions. Obviously questions, you're listening. And a big one that a lot of people don't realize that's a powerful thing that connects you with people that really is very influential is the power of stories. Stories persuade without detection. If you could have some type of story, people just listen. It grabs their attention and it persuades without detection. They put themselves subconsciously in the story. They're looking at it. They might become the main character and it persuades themselves. You could tell somebody what to do or and how to do it, but if there's a story there, we have found that stories, even analogies, examples, those type of things are very, very powerful in your ability to become influential without being controlling. Well, I just think about in culture how often the movies we watch, the books that we read, the stories that we read in the newspaper, how what an enormous impact they have on shaping our cultural values and our individual values. And just kind of our, our behavior. And I mean, I, I feel like it's probably a conversation for another another time. But let's say somebody is on a date and they're trying to figure out what uh, type of story they should be telling. Um, do you have any kind of suggestions or recommendations for this situation? Well, there's two types of stories. There's stories that you borrow, which are harder to tell because you lived them. But they're usually home run stories because they're, they've been out there. But stories that you live, especially in a dating situation, if you want to build that trust and that connectivity, get people to know you, people believe stories. You can tell somebody that you're honest and trustworthy. They're not going to believe you. But if there's a story about when you were honest or trustworthy or did something right or something heroic or you changed someone's life or you made the world a better place, if you can tell that into a story, it becomes reality and they kind of give you that trait versus you telling them that you have that trait. And so if you have any story – that you could tell them about your childhood or growing up that gets them to know you, that connects you with them, is going to be a lot more powerful than telling them that you have that trait or characteristic. How important are details in, in the storytelling process? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say yes because I think we see both sides. Some people are just so much detail. They go so long. They turn us off. We're done. I'll say two to three minute story that has great detail. You want to paint the picture. You want to make them feel it, taste it, touch it. 
and become part of them. But there is a point where you can have way too much detail, just brief and to the point. It doesn't have to be that long. I love detail. I love when you paint the picture where you're there and you're tasting it and you're part of it. But you can cross the line with too much detail. I guess like the obvious signs are somebody starts to tune out or uh, they are trying to escape every time you tell a story. You've probably gone too far. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, eye contact should be big. When you're an engaging story, they're they're with you. The eye contact, they're there. They're listening. They're following every word. But if they're glancing at a watch, looking at their phone, texting, those are pretty big red flags that, yeah, not with you and you're too much detail or they don't like the story. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchristmas.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows, attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. When we think about influence or persuasion and it relates to dating, I, I think that there are guys who have listened to this who will attempt to try to get a girl to rationally, like try to rationalize to a woman why they should go on a date with them or why they should be in a relationship with them or why they should be intimate with them. And uh, usually that's not a very effective strategy. <laughs> so can, can you give me your insights on this and, and what they could do that would be a little bit more effective? Because they think, they think well, I want to persuade them. And so uh, they think that's kind of how they have to persuade. Well, that's the thing with influence is the techniques they work, right? And so people hear a great technique and they go out and try it and it bombs miserably. Just like the first time when we golf. It wasn't a great experience. <laughs> And I think the big thing, when you see a, a beautiful woman and you want to date and it's the first time you've tested out a technique or told a story, it's not going to work that well because it's not part of you. It's not that – there's not the congruence there. I think your listeners should be practicing their people skills, their stories with everybody they meet, even if they don't want to date with a lady but they see someone at the, the coffee shop or at Starbucks or wherever it is. Practice telling a story. Practice connecting with them. It could be even a coworker. It could even be a, another – a guy is always just telling a story and connecting it to know them, adapting to their personality. I think the biggest challenge is these tools work, but if you just try it once and never practice it and never really hone in that skill to use it, then it'll backfire on you. So that's the big thing. Practice it all the time with everybody you meet, that connection, that trust, the telling the stories, the ask the questions. Then it becomes natural. Then it's much easier when you approach that beautiful woman. I know, I know in a more general way a lot of this kind of goes back to charisma and how to become charismatic and i mean it really kind of hit home and one of the last election cycles bill clinton gave a speech for obama 
And when he gave that speech, he was just incredibly effective at uh, regardless of what political party. He took some really complex ideas and made them simple and and helped Obama out a lot when uh, he was struggling. And that's something that like I've noticed good politicians will do. They tend to have this ability to, to kind of pull people in and persuade them. So can you talk a little bit about that connection between charisma, persuasion, influence? Charisma is the, I don't know what you call it, the trump card. It's the one that's the most important. The reason I did the research on charisma, because you know, I mentioned earlier, there's over 100 tools. Well, people are like, okay, what's the most important? People want to give, cut to the chase. What's the most important? And it's charisma. Because when you're charismatic, people want to be around you. They want to be with you. They want to date you. They want to do things for you. That's how it is. And Bill Clinton does exude charisma. He's a great presenter, great speaker. And then what Obama did was borrow his credibility, borrow his charisma. And that's one thing your listeners can do is if, if someone can introduce you or someone can give you, say he's a great person, wow, because you have something to gain. But if you can borrow that credibility, use that social validation, it's very powerful. And that's why I was so fascinated with charisma is that, you know, can it be learned? And then the answer is absolutely. You can learn charisma. That is the tool. The most important thing you can learn is becoming charismatic because now it's natural. It's part of you. People want to be around you and people become very easy to influence. That's an awesome statement. The idea that you could borrow it. And I think about everything from when somebody is introduced uh, before a speech by somebody who has a lot of rapport or a lot of status or influence with a particular audience, or even a brand, right? Somebody, Nike borrows the influence of some super athlete in order to get some of that charisma for their brand or some of that value to associate with their brand. I think that's an awesome statement. You, you mentioned that charisma can be learned. Can you give us some specific things that people can do to become more charismatic? I came up with four different categories. I mean, the first one is being your presence. You know, when you walk into a room, do people notice? Do they want to be around you? And that could be anywhere from your passion to your confidence. And we got to be careful with that one because that can quickly turn to arrogance or cockiness. It could be the energy you have around you. Exercise increases your charisma. Being in shape increases your charisma. Smiling, having a sense of humor. The interesting one that came up with presence is, are you optimistic? You know, do people feel better about themselves when they're around you? Have you lifted them up? So your presence is a big part of it, but then also your core qualities, you on the inside, are you charisma on the inside? Do you have self-discipline? Do you have courage and confidence in your life? Do you have an area of focus? So even on the inside, because the inside dictates the outside. So the things that you're doing with your life. So that came out. Also, your ability to communicate, obviously, presentations, one-on-one your presentation skills, your people skills, your ability to tell stories, your eye contact, build a rapport. And then the biggest one that people think of, the fourth one, is empowering others. Can you motivate them? Do you help them build? Can you build a vision that they can see, taste, touch, and feel? Do you have empathy? Can you inspire others? All comes in that category. I mean, that's a kind of a quick overview of charisma. But first of all, it can be learned. And there are four areas that make a huge difference becoming more charismatic where people want to be around you and, and influenced by you. There's a few questions I want to ask you about just some of the things that you said. What is some of the difference between confidence and arrogance? That's the, kind of the first one. Can you expand on this? Well, the first one to realize is that a lot of people think they're confident, but we're being judged as arrogant or cocky, which is 
the kiss of death, whether you're dating or whether you're negotiating in business, doesn't matter. You cross that line, which I think we agree is a fine line. You cross that line, then it's all over. And when I interview people about that, because it's an interesting topic, because that confidence is part of trust. You need that confidence. You want the doctor to tell you what to do. You because they're the they're the expert. So confidence is when you're serving somebody, you're help someone. It's about them. Cockiness, it's more about you and what you can do and how good you are and how great you are. And here's one that happens, whether it be a dating situation or even a sales situation that you cross the line. A lot of times in dating or in sales or in negotiation, we always hear the same objections over and over again. And we like to save time, cut them off, and solve the question or solve the objection. And that's where we cross the line from confidence to arrogance because it's the first time they've asked it. You've cut them off. You have the arrogance to, to tell them what they should do or give them the solution. And working with women, their brain's just different. They think differently. And we learn real fast as guys that they don't want the solution. <laughs> they just want you to listen. And as guys, oh, here's the solution, here's the solution. No, you just listen. You give a female a solution like that, you're going to repel them. So when they ask a question or have an objection, even though you've heard it a hundred times, you have to listen, you have to pause, then you reply, then you don't cross the line from, from confidence to arrogance. You also talked a little bit about painting a vision that people would potentially want to follow. I forget exactly how you phrased it, but how does a person who maybe is still trying to figure out themselves, begin to, to do that. I, I'm trying to figure out exactly how to phrase, but I, we'll just go with that. <laughs> okay, that works for me. Well, and when you look at influence, if people can't see it mentally, it's never going to happen physically. So that's where we create a vision where they can see it, taste it, touch it, feel it. They can become part of it. They can see themselves doing it. Otherwise, it's never going to happen. Now, the inter interesting study they did with inner city kids, they tell them to go to college, go to college, go to college. They don't go to college because to them, they have no vision of it. They've never seen it. Their parents didn't go, what is college? So they take them to a college. They mirror a student for a day. So when they say go to college, now they can see it. They can visualize it. Now they go to college. So whether it's dating or business, you have to be able to create a vision where they can see themselves doing it. And you can do that through stories, through painting the picture, through asking questions. But if you could build that vision where they can mentally see it, then it goes a long way. Because the challenge with vision is uh, that a lot of people, and this is true on a personal level or when you're talking to people, is people get stuck in worry. Worry, worry, worry. And worry is negative goal setting in a lot of ways. But here's the thing that's so important to understand is if the person you're talking to is stuck in worry, what if, what if, what if, which again is a form of fear, it's because their vision's not strong enough. So they don't see themselves doing it, so they get stuck on the worry. So if you're attempting to date someone or to connect somebody and they're what if, what if stuck, they haven't seen the vision. They can't see themselves doing it, and they get stuck in worry. Uh, have you ever seen Eat, Pray, Love? I haven't seen that one, no. Oh, it's like a best-selling book most women read. I think at one point I may have been persuaded by an ex-girlfriend to watch it. But <laughs> there's a scene at the end where one of the main male characters with the main female character and – He's, from my memory, he's trying to get her into a relationship. And there's like the scene where he's trying to get her in the boat and he's like, get in the boat. And she's like, I'm not getting the boat. And he's like, get in the boat. And like he persuades her to get into the boat with him. And it's like kind of a metaphor for this bigger idea about relationships. And I think that what you're saying probably has some very 
important pertinence to relationships, right? So if somebody wants to be in a relationship, they probably have to paint a picture of what that relationship would be like. Oh, absolutely. Especially when you're dealing with the female brain. They're better female traditionally their brains, their two hemispheres work better together. They tend to be more big picture people, future people, what's gonna happen. That's important. To a lot of guys it's all about the now, the now, the now, solution, solution. There were different chemistry, different brains. So if you could help them see the big picture, the future, taking care of them, the date, whatever it is, if you can paint the future and how it's going to look and how it's going to benefit them, then you're going to have that connection and they're much easier to influence. Does a person, in order to paint a picture of the future, have to have been there? No, absolutely not. You can paint a picture of something in the future, family in the future, whatever it is. You could paint a picture of a home of a relationship, of a future. Obviously, if it's easier, you could take them, look, this is it. <laughs> I mean, that's a lot easier, but you can paint the picture. They can see it. They can visualize it. Then it's very beneficial. Yeah, I was thinking as you were saying uh, that about Henry Ford and the V8 engine or Steve Jobs and everything he did, <laughs> just about. <laughs> but... He had to do that. He was a visionary, and he had to say, look, this is the future, get people to buy in without ever seeing it up front. I mean, you've been around a lot of type of people, people who are kind of really successful. What are some of the characteristics of people who are, for example, millionaires or, or really wealthy and kind of how do they use these qualities or what qualities do they use in order to develop their levels of success as it pertains to like influencing other people? Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, you interviewed all those millionaires. I think it was thousands of millionaires. He said the influence is that magic ingredient. And so part of millionaire psychology is if you want to become a millionaire or whatever your goal is, if it's to become a millionaire, we start thinking, acting, and doing what other millionaires do. I mean, it just automatically happens when you do that. And I call it self-persuasion. You can persuade others, but if you're not very good at persuading yourself, you're not good at persuading others. So if you look at millionaire psychology, changing the way you think, it's all about self-persuasion, persuading yourself. All the laws of persuasion that I talk about, you can use on yourself. For example, the vision and the worry. If you're stuck on worry about the future, it's because you haven't built a vision for yourself. You can use that for other people. You can use that for yourself. So millionaire psychology is something that where you start really thinking like millionaires, you change the way you think, you change your belief system to where it becomes part of who you are. One of the things that I thought of as you were saying that was the effect on basically how we feel affects other people. Right. So when you have kind of a visionary, feel like you have direction, then I think the people around you get the sense that you have direction. So can you talk more about the emotional component of this? The big picture, I mean, to simplify this, we've learned more about the human brain in the last 10 years and the last 100 years combined. And we've probably heard this before is that our thoughts control our emotions and our emotions control our actions. And so what we think about becomes reality. It manifests itself. It's, it can be that simple to change the way we think. Remember our thoughts. I just remember the drink tea. Thoughts control emotions. Emotions control actions. And it all comes back to your thoughts. If you're always negative and your attitude's always negative and you're always pessimistic, you don't become very influential. In fact, it's amazing the studies that mood matters. If you want to influence somebody, two things here. Your mood matters and their mood matters. So if you just had a fight or had a bad day at work and you put on that fake smile, they're going to sense it. They're not going to think that you had a bad day. They're just something's wrong. That subconscious trigger just doesn't feel right. And if you want to influence somebody and they're in a rotten mood, 
either you need to come back later or you need to put them into a better mood. Because when people are in a negative mood, they recall negative things and why it won't work out and they become very pessimistic. But when people are in a positive mood, they become more optimistic, why it will work out, what was what happened well in that relationship in the past, it makes a huge difference. And it all a lot of times it all comes back to our thoughts. Earlier you were talking about, you mentioned like sitting in grandma's chair and I thought about like sitting in the boss's chair or even my mom, my, my mom had uh, a couple dogs and to tease them when we were kids, we might take the collar off one dog and put it on the other dog. And the first dog would uh, almost have a breakdown because it, we, ha- we begin to associate certain objects or things with, for example, power or status. And so I think of like the crown on a king, for example. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how our environments affect influence, like where we're at in certain cases, well, in a lot of cases, who we're with? Well, sure. Our environments affect our moods. It could be come back to the the we talked about the subconscious trigger. Colors can affect mood. Music can affect mood. Our surroundings can affect mood. Our friends can affect mood. I mean, if people, your friends are sucking the life out of you and they're very pessimistic, you have to re-examine that relationship because that matters. Even our environment growing up, our beliefs. It's interesting that when when we were in first and second grade, that when people told us something about ourselves, positive or negative, it became an instant belief. We didn't have the cognitive or mental abilities to refute that. So a lot of times as adults, we have conflicting beliefs. Something that we were told in first grade about money or life or dating or the opposite sex has become a belief versus a different belief as adults. A lot of times these conflicting beliefs we have growing up, that environment can really affect how we act, how we perform as adults. Any suggestions for working through some of these beliefs that they're limiting? The first one's identifying them. That's huge for a lot of people. I use the example as if you shot a torpedo at a target and had two guidance systems telling it what to do, it would never hit the target. So if you have conflicting beliefs that you want to be happy in marriage and find the perfect person versus you were told early on that you would never be successful in marriage or marriages never work out or you'll never be able to have a good relationship, those could conflict. And for a lot of people, even money is a huge one. They grew up with, oh, money's the root of all evil and and wealthy people are uh, filthy rich and all these negative things and you want to be financially independent wondering why it's never happening out because you have conflicting beliefs you want to be financially independent but you were told your whole life that you wouldn't go to heaven or filthy rich or they are, they still or they stepped on people to get there that could be a conflicting belief for a lot of people they really have to work that through identify it number one and then realize where it came from and then give yourself the belief that you want any kind of last recommendations, thoughts, tips, words of wisdom from that great mind of yours for the people who are listening <laughs> on how they can be more persuasive? Well, there's something that's really interesting, whether it be negotiation or dating, what's called FITD or called foot in the door technique. Basically, it's easier to persuade people a little bit at a time than asking for a big request. So let's take dating, for example, that if you're getting a lot of no, a lot of rejection, what the foot in the door technique states is that what you're asking for is too big. If you can persuade people in the smaller things or even let them influence you on a few things, they're easier to influence down the road. Let me throw in a study. I love different scientific studies. So at a university, they went to the psychology students and said, hey, would you participate in a study Saturday at 6 a.m.? And it was only like 25% that said yes. It was very low. 
But then they switched it up and that doubled the amount of yeses they got. All they did was this. Hey, we're doing a study on sensory perception when you participate. Well, yes. It's Saturday at 6. It's on Saturday. Can you be there? Yes, it's at 6 a.m. So what they did is they took what they were asking into smaller, manageable, bite-sized pieces, and it doubled the amount of yeses they get. So to open your eye, everyone's eyes is if you're asking and getting a lot of no's, you're asking too much. Break it down to smaller yeses, smaller pieces. Get them onto the yes, 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 yes. And once you're asked that 10th, 11th, 12th yes, it's easier to get a yes because you'd be getting yeses all the way through. It's called foot in the door technique. Another thing it makes me think about is, uh, for example, something as simple as eating, right? Like we eat every day, but if you have a steak in front of you, try to eat the whole thing all at one time, you'll choke on it if you can get it in your mouth. But by breaking <laughs> up into pieces that are small enough, you'll not only be able to digest it as you decide, it kind of builds momentum. And it sounds like it builds trustworthiness to a certain extent, right? Like if somebody trusts you after a small request, they are more likely to trust you for the next request. And it could be simple things. Can you hand me that straw? Can you scoot over one? Can you do this for me? And most people will do that, but you've just influenced them. You've, and so when you're asking for the things down the road, it could be simple things like that. Move over, raise your hand, say yes, answer this question. If you can get little, inf- little pieces of influence along the way, then it's easier to ask your bigger questions down the road, and it makes a huge difference. This is awesome. Kerry, this has been incredible. I got to wrap this up. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And if you're listening and you want to learn more about Kurt, his books, which I absolutely recommend that you read, knowledge is, is so essential and he's got just great, great advice. I'm going to post some links within the description of this podcast and on the Craft Charisma website so you can find out about him more easily. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's dating coach Chris Thoney here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, Go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.